Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One of the divides you see over and over in politics is on the question of how much should the government get involved? How much should they get involved with regulating guns or reproductive options or taking money in taxes? On this list of what the government ought or ought not to get involved in, you've probably never seen the issue of growing rice. And why would you? Well, says author Seamus McGraw, this is no ordinary rice. The story here is that a few years back, there is a a farmer and rancher in uh, West Texas, in arid West Texas, uh, by the name of Williams, uh, Jeff Williams. Williams and his family had the rights to a ton of water in Texas that they could pump out of the aquifer under their land, no matter how dry Texas got. That's what the state Supreme Court had told them. And what it basically comes down to is that an individual landowner has the right to literally pull up as much water as they possibly can, as long as it's used for, quote, more or less beneficial purposes. And that's the end of it. It boils down to whoever has the biggest pump wins. And the Williamses had among the the bigger pumps. McGraw is the author of A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. He says that what Jeff Williams could not do by law was ship the water to other people who needed it. Even when drought began to plague Texas in 2010, and even when that drought was forcing some farmers to abandon their crops, Jeff Williams thought the situation was curious, to say the least. He reads in the newspaper that, well, you know what, 40,000 acres of rice are being let go. Well, I'm a, I'm a farmer. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to raise rice in the desert. Now, to be fair, it was only a small plot. It was only a few acres. It was a test plot. It was more to make a point than it was to actually make a profit. The point was that despite the fact that rice is generally grown in places like Southeast Asia, where monsoons batter the landscape with rain, the Williamses could grow rice in the desert in the middle of a drought. And that, McGraw argues, tells us a lot about where we're headed with water, not just in Texas, but in the country as a whole. You have the abdication of the federal to the state, the abdication of the state to the local, and ultimately the abdication of the local to the individual. And that becomes, I think, a a powerful challenge. And how Texas responds to this challenge is instructive for how the rest of us are going to respond to the challenges we're facing. What we're facing is a nation increasingly plagued by both lack of water, droughts, forest fires, and too much water, much of it unsafe or contaminated. Up till now, water has been a classic government versus the individual struggle in America, politics by another name. But it can't stay that way. McGraw says when we're struggling to find enough water for people in lots of American cities, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Phoenix, something's got to give. And Texas, for him, most clearly encapsulates that lesson. It's not an accident that for much of the Southwest, for example, when they first became part of the United States, they were very sparsely populated. Mm -hmm. They were very sparsely populated because they could support very sparse populations. And technology has changed this. I mean, it's hard to imagine a phoenix before air conditioning, for example. I mean, the phoenix of today. There could be no phoenix before before air conditioning. There could be no 
El Paso. There could be no there could be no San Antonio mm-hmm. today were it not for the technological advancements that have taken place and particularly took place in the post-war era. So so the implication is here that we've put too many people um, or that they've put themselves in the Las Vegases and the Phoenixes and the El Pasos, certainly given the amount of water that we have in those places. And I'll, I'll just say on behalf of those people, like, what? I mean, these are major areas of economic importance and cultural importance. Are you saying in 30 years they're going to turn on the tap and water's not going to come out? No, here, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to turn on the tap and, 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 no, and nothing comes out but sand. Sure, that is certainly one possibility. But I think it's an unlikely possibility. The problem isn't necessarily that there isn't enough water in Texas. It's that there isn't enough water in Texas where the population centers are. This is true elsewhere in the United States. Mm -hmm. We can rise to that challenge, but it's going to require that sort of top-down view. The other thing that it's going to require is the recognition that all water is not created equal. The average American consumes in all forms uh, probably about 135 gallons of water a day. Okay, okay. Somewhere in the vicinity of that. Of that, about 10% actually enters their body. And yet the vast majority of water that Americans touch is treated to drinking water standards. And this is stuff we touch. This isn't like what's used to grow our food in. This is like showers well, and it, drinking. It's, in, it's including all of that. But when you turn around, the, the amount that you actually consume, the, act, the amount that actually enters your body mm-hmm. is about 10% of that. Okay. Now, the reality is most of that water is treated to safe drinking water standards in, in, in many places, unless you're pulling it up out of a well. Um, it need not necessarily be. There are options. There are other places where they're exploring things like purple pipes that turn around and use gray and recycled water and those sorts of things for uses other than potable water. Okay. So the most precious water, I make this point a lot, Kara, is that you know, we, we don't like to talk about water as a commodity, but it is a commodity as well as a human right, I believe. And the bottom line is it's a, it's a commodity that has a price. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm talking to Seamus McGraw, author of the book, A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. We're talking about our current fight over water. So if the if the uh, national government has sort of abdicated its responsibility to figure out how to redistribute water in a logical way and state governments often kind of have too, and local governments kind of have too, and now it's just like up to individual people to suck whatever they want out of the ground if they if they can. Good for them. I feel like what you're saying is the only way to motivate people probably is going to be a crisis so big and so painful that people can't do anything but address it. There's a line there's a line that they often use in Texas and I think it's applicable to the rest of the country. The only way anything gets done on water in Texas is if you have two things. One is a drought and the other is a budget surplus. And I think that's true. That seems like a recipe. I mean, maybe it's a recipe for lawmaking, but it all seems like a recipe for disaster. Well, except I I am a firm believer in the old Churchillian adage uh, that Americans will do the right thing after they've, after they've exhausted every other option. I'm a firm believer in that. And right. I do believe that, yeah, that it, it probably will take a crisis. And I think that crisis is looming. 
Um, but I do ultimately believe that in times of crisis, it's sometimes hard to differentiate between altruism and enlightened self-interest. And I think we may be moving to a point where that becomes more likely. Hmm. Um, and I think there are tools at our disposal. So you've obviously spent a year sitting how we deal with water. Um, when you think about people filling swimming pools and, you know, water skiing on man-made lakes, which happens in Texas, uh, happens elsewhere too, do you think people feel like we're in a crisis? No, people don't feel like they're, like they're in a crisis. And I, they, here's why we don't feel like we're in a crisis. It's, I think it's because we're removed from it. We don't see necessarily the drop in river levels. We certainly do not see the decline in the Ogallala Aquifer. People above it know it's happening, mm -hmm. but it's not something you see. The vast majority of Texans live in cities. They live in suburbs. They have very little interaction with the natural world. Which is true of most people in America. And it's like true, lots of people of, it's in America, true right? across the United States. Right. And increasingly, it's true across the world. Mm -hmm. We have increasingly less contact with sort of that first hand. Right, right. And it, so it becomes very, very easy to lose track of how deeply tied to it we are. And so I do think that to a great extent, people are insulated from it until the problem becomes critical enough that they're not. If you live in a place like New York or Chicago or Seattle and you're like, it rains all the time. We have plenty of lakes. We the Things are plenty green here. It's fine. Um, this is all interesting to folks in Texas, maybe, or Los Angeles, maybe, or Phoenix, maybe. But why should I care? Do you ever did an answer for those people? A couple of well, a couple of reasons. Okay, one, what happens in Texas does affect you. We're, none of us are in this alone. Hmm. That giant game of whack-a-mole that gets played across Texas gets played to a very great extent across the rest of the United States. There's one other point I'd like to add to that. We tend when uh, it, it, it may be by, by, by dint of the title, but we tend to talk only about the dry times. When we talk about when I, when I have discussions about these books, that's only part of the issue. As we've seen, as we're seeing repeatedly, not only are the dry places getting drier, but the wet places are getting wetter. Right. And they're getting wetter in a way that it becomes difficult or impossible to manage those kinds of flows of water. When you turn around, you're sitting in New York and you say, well, you know what, I've gotten three and a half inches of rain in the last two days. That's three and a half inches of rain washing all kinds of stuff into those pristine reservoirs of yours up in the Catskills. That's three and a half inches of rain that's turning around and putting pressure on your treatment systems. That's three and a half inches of rain that may be threatening the integrity of some of your water systems. It's not just water. It's it's good water. It's clean water. It's water that doesn't have a bunch of chemicals exactly. in it. Exactly. Okay. So, again, it, it it's a mistake to – kind of the mistake that we're making even in having this discussion this way, why should I care if I'm in New York, 
is exactly the fundamental problem that we're facing in all the water issues, which is this idea that we tend to think of water as my water. It's not my water. It's part of a system that spans regions, nations, the globe. Seamus McGraw is the author of the book, A Thirsty Land, The Making of an American Water Crisis. Seamus, thank you. My pleasure. On our website, we'll have more about a city that faced the prospect of no water at all, Cape Town, South Africa. That's at innovationhub.org.